we are in week three of, uh, of a series where we're talking about what it is to pass your faith on to the next generation, uh, mostly uh, for parents because the Bible kind of uh, shows the way that in the home or the parents-to-child relationship is the primary way that uh, God has set up to pass the faith on generationally and that Christianity works generationally and the people of God continue to follow generation after generation, follow God in their own culture, in their own context, and those kinds of things, but they follow and have a relationship with God and really are the people of God. And so as we're talking about that, uh, we're going to uh, talk about intentional relationships today and what that looks like and, uh, and how we have relationships with our children. If your children don't live at home anymore or your children don't live in your home yet, uh, because you are, haven't got kids yet. This also, I think, is true uh, for just relationships that you have. If you're a teacher or a grandparent or a coach or a lunch buddy or a reading buddy or a mentoring buddy, uh, I think we, as Christians, see all of those relationships differently. We're not just telling someone they're great. We're telling someone why they're great, because they're made in the image of God and that they have like a divine uh, dream for their life and a divine hope for their life in God's Son, Jesus Christ. So when we talk about, and I was in, I did, before I was a pastor of this church, I worked in youth ministry, which is, if you, it's like I spent a lot of time with teenagers and tried to help them follow Jesus. And uh, when, when we see people, the, the percentage of kids who grow up in the faith and then reject it is higher than it has been in generations past. And the, a lot of people are like, well, we need to teach them better or have better like video clips or more pyrotechnics or whatever or something like that. Really what we see and what tends to happen is that kids don't reject the faith over bad teaching. They tend to reject the faith over bad relationships. And, and really that tends to happen in all areas of your life. Things tend to fall apart not because someone teaches something poorly or acts in a weird way. It's because the relationship falls apart. Someone who had influence over you or helped you know things and then your relationship erodes. Uh, it's like I have friends who teach me things that I think are, well, I think they're wrong, but we're still friends and they're still able to have an influence on my life because we're friends and that role, it might be the weirdest thing to say, to say that your relationship, like you actually have a relationship with your children or with your grandchildren or with the kids you coach or something like that. You might not even think about it in that kind of way because generations past, that, that didn't exist. My dad didn't, he wouldn't say he had a relationship with my grandpa. It's just like he was his dad. He told him what to do. He did it. And there you go. That's the relationship. And, and as generations and just the cycle of generations, uh, it's different now. And we might think or you might have too much of a relationship with your child. Uh, it is always hilarious to me when grown adults say, my best friend is my kid. And I'm like, wow, there are lots of other people you could be best friends with, you know, like your kid is six. But the... <laughs> but that hasn't actually happened. It was just funny. But there is... A, but there is this kind of um, concept of being intentional about your relationship with your children that I think is biblical. And, uh, and I think that's what I want to talk about because I think intentionality in all relationships where you're trying to pass something on to someone else, that relationship needs to be intentional. 
If you're a follower of Jesus, your kids aren't going to become followers of Jesus by accident. Like People don't drift. This is biblical. They don't drift towards holiness. They drift away from holiness and without an intentionality to it. All of my relationships where I'm investing in someone else, and this is not all of my relationships. Some relationships I just am friends. But all of my relationships where I'm investing in someone else or when someone else is investing in me, there's an intentionality there. There's like, we have a goal in this relationship. Like we're friends, yes. Like I have a, I have a, a mentor or a coach that helps me and, and uh, we, he sits down and he has an acrostic, an acrostic, an acrostic that he goes through that we talk and we're friends outside of that, of course, but we have an intentionality to our relationship because we have an expectation of growth. Uh, and so that's kind of where I want to go today. And I want to tell a story to kind of work that. We're not going to have any scriptures on the screen because we're going to talk about Genesis 25 to 33 today. And if we read all of that, the sleepy time tea back there would kick in and you'd be asleep by the end. So did you, I just found out today, we serve sleepy time tea. <laughs> just found out. So this is the last Sunday we're serving sleepy time <laughs> So get it while you can. The, that'll explain some of your reactions to my sermons over the last few weeks. But the, um, if you were like uh, in the fields, in uh, the, would have been the country of Canaan or where the Middle East or in, in say in 1400 BC, and you could have been a shepherd or something tending your sheep and, and you look down in this valley, you would have seen this scene that was pretty wild. There was this um, scene where this man named Jacob and this man named Esau met together and they embraced and they started just weeping uh, while they talked. And, and if you see two men walk up to each other and hug and start weeping, you know there's a story there, right? You know there's something going on. Well, for Jacob and Esau, they were actually brothers who hadn't seen each other in years. And when they met, they had actually, uh, they had both done well in their lives as far as uh, their family life goes and their financial life and they're an agricultural society and so their flocks and herds were large. And when they were meeting, Jacob was wildly afraid of Esau because the last time they had a conversation, Esau said, I'm going to kill Jacob. And they were brothers. And so you can imagine the fear that he had in finally going and meeting and attempting to reconcile with his brother. And Jacob actually sent gifts ahead, like uh, goats and herds and sheep and uh, livestock ahead as a gift because he was afraid that he was like kind of trying to butter up his brother. And when his brother, when they met and they hugged and they embraced, his brother said, what was with all that stuff that you sent ahead? Like, that's a weird way to march your caravan through the, and they're like, those are gifts so that you would, you know, see me favorably. And, and he returned the gifts and then they argued over that, like brothers would. But <laughs> there is this moment where they came back together and they were apart for a long, long time. And like I said, the last time they had ever talked to each other or been in the same area as each other. Esau had said, I'm going to kill Jacob. And the reason he was going to kill Jacob is because Jacob kind of stole from him something that he thought was already his. You see, their father, his name was Isaac, as he was getting old, was kind of a patriarch kind of guy and had like in a kind of tribal time when people lived. 
and, and he was going to pass away and he knew it and he was going blind or he was almost blind and, and he said to his, his son Esau and his, his son Esau, the Bible kind of says, uh, was his favorite, was the son that he preferred. And Esau was like a, a man's man. Esau uh, hunted and, and went out in the wild and would get wild animals and wild game and bring them back. And his father loved eating that. And Esau was a hairy dude. <laughs> like he was the kind of, he was the image or the stereotype of what you would think as in, a, in a pre-manscaping society. He would go out and, and uh, be able to uh, enjoy the outdoors and the wilderness. And he was he was the kind of son that a dad could be proud of without having to fake it. Uh, and if you have a son where you're faking it, this is, first of all, stop doing that. But this is, he was like, all the other dads would tell their sons, why can't you be more like Esau, you know? Like if they had youth sports at that time, Esau would have been awesome at those too, you know? And, and if they had... Uh, you know, standardized curriculum, Esau would have met his ex expectations. <laughs> he wouldn't have exceeded but, because he was kind of an outdoorsy guy, but he would have met his expectations. See, when Esau would go out and, and Isaac was nearing the end of his life, he sent Esau out and said, I want you to go out and hunt and get something and make me a really big meal because I enjoy those big meals and, and then I'm going to eat that and then I'm going to give you my blessing and, and, and then I'm going to pass on. And because he was the oldest, and they had these two sons, the way blessings worked in those days is if you had like four kids, then you divided up your inheritance into five, and the oldest kid got two parts. All the oldest children, so I'll say amen. Amen. As an oldest child. It makes sense to me. Um, so when, if, if you have eight kids, you divide into nine, the oldest kid gets two shares, and that's just the way that their culture worked, you know, and, and I'm not saying it should work like that, but as an oldest child, so anyway, uh, when they were going to pass on, they were going to divide their inheritance, and Esau was going to receive a double share. Now, Isaac had a wife, and her name was Rebecca, and Rebecca and Isaac apparently didn't see eye to eye, because her favorite was Jacob, and Jacob could cook and do well, but he wasn't that kind of outdoorsy kind of guy. And he wasn't, in a word, he wasn't Esau. And Rebecca preferred Jacob. And all the other dads would say, or all the other moms, sorry, all the other moms would say, why can't you be more like Jacob? And that's not what you wanted in their culture. <laughs> you didn't want to be preferred by your mom. You wanted to be preferred by your dad. But Rebecca heard what was happening, and she went to Jacob, and she said, hey, let's, you go and kill a goat and bring it in here, and I'll prepare it exactly the way your dad likes it, and then we can sneak you in there, and you can have the inheritance, and he will give you the blessing, because he's blind anyway, and we can trick him. And you can imagine what it would be like to be Esau and Jacob. They're already, if you had a sibling that you were radically different from, it's already there's some weird tension there. And it's like, and especially in a society where the favors the oldest or favors the, the firstborn, there's a weird tension in that that person is favored and I'm not favored. 
and especially for the not favored. The favored person never notices, right? The oldest one is always oblivious. It's the next and the, you know, and the middle child always has something to say. And if you're a middle child, I'm sure you have something to say about that, but nobody's listening. So when, <laughs> when, when we, like when you see the story, Jacob and Esau, they had actually had this experience several years before where Esau was out hunting and was unsuccessful and came back and Jacob was cooking some stew and Esau was starving. And he said, come on, man, give me, give me some of your stew. Like an oldest child would bully the next. And like a typical younger or middle child, he had some kind of deceptive plan in mind and said, I'll give you some of this if you give me your birthright. So he's basically trading inheritance. I know you get a double share, and I only get a single share. I'll give you some of this if you trade that. Well, their dad was so well off that who cares if you get a double share or a single share? You're good anyways. So he traded right away. He's like, what good? Like, I'm starving to death here. What good am I if I'm dead? So yeah, go ahead and trade. And he ate. Like, for a bowl of stew, he gave away his birthright as the oldest. But that's a conversation they had. And that's a conversation you have, and you go, you know what, I didn't mean it, I'm sorry, that's, forget about that, like, that was stupid. But apparently they never had that second conversation. And so Jacob actually does what his mom says, and they go, and he kills a goat from the herd, and brings him, and they create this meal, and, and, and this is so you know, Esau was so hairy, they took the skin from the goat, and tied it on to Jacob, somehow, and put it on his neck, the Bible actually says this, because when they went up and the father put his hands on him, they wanted it to feel like his brother. That level of hairy, all right? <laughs> so when, when they, Jacob goes in, and the father's confused because his voice and everything about this experience just feels wrong, but, you know, you're, you're just like, it feels wrong, but it's probably just me, whatever, and he gives him the blessing, and then he leaves, and Esau comes in, and, and he says, oh, who is this? And it's like, oh, it's your oldest son. And he's like, no, my oldest son was just here. And he's like, no, I just got back. And they notice that they're deceived. And he asked, Esau asked, do you have any blessing left? Like, do you, have, do you have any loopholes that you can work through? And he gives them a blessing, but it's a way lesser blessing that you will always be lesser than your brother. You will always be chasing him. You will always be at odds with who, what he is and what you are. And this tension is given to the rest of their life. And so Jacob and Esau have this struggle between them where they are apart, because Esau says, all right, then I'm going to kill him. And Jacob has, ends up having to run his mother. This is it's kind of funny because his mother says, I want you to go to my relative's place because I don't want you to marry one of these Hittite women. Oh, these Hittite women. And so not only was she conniving and deceitful, she was a bit racist. And like, I don't want you to marry one of these. You go over there and marry one of those women. When uh, I don't know what's wrong with the Hittites, but they're, she didn't want her son marrying them. And so when they, uh, they end up apart, and then they come together, and all of this is built up. When, when you read the story, though, what happened wasn't, a problem between Jacob and Esau, what happened was a problem between their mom and their dad. 
Because their mom and their dad weren't intentional about bringing their kids up in the way of God, instead they were intentional about getting what they wanted for their kids, it all, it all collapsed, and their kids ended up paying the price for that with their lives, like not just not their death, sorry, but like with the tension that they felt throughout their lives. Instead of their kids experiencing like a loving home or a hopeful home or an open relationship with their parents, they experience the result of the disagreement between their mom and their dad, between the people who were going to teach them and show them how the world works and how people operate, and what they ended up becoming like, the, the disagreement between their parents. They ended up becoming like the discord between their parents. They ended up, when Isaac favored Esau and Rebekah favored Jacob, they ended up apart because the parents started apart. When you end up, and we talked about marriage last week and we're not going to talk about marriage this week, but you, this is just another example of that same thing playing out. That the culture that you create in your home is at least as important as the truth that you teach in your home. The culture you create in your home is at least as important as the truth that you create in your home. At least the way I see things, the medium is the message. And I didn't come up with that. That's a Canadian philosopher who says this. The, you can't change the message and still give the same medium that you have. It's like in an easy example of this. If you go into a church where they have oh, like pipe organs and everybody's wearing gowns and hats and they sit, stand, and nobody talks, like the medium teaches you something about the holiness of God. Like, I like going into those places sometimes because I learn about the holiness of God. You come into this church and people are wearing their pajamas and drinking coffee, and you learn something about the, the friendliness of God, right? Both are true, but you, the medium of being at the Grove teaches you something more. Like, I couldn't get up and tell you something that runs against the medium that we have. The home that you create becomes this medium that teaches and passes on the truth that you believe. So when Isaac and Rebekah were raising Jacob and Esau, the medium that they raised them in was, I prefer this one, and, and the other parent preferred this one, and that's going to set up tension between us, and then that tension is the truth that's going to pass on to you. Their intentionality about their relationship was towards their own wants and not towards becoming people of God. The things in their life ended up having to play out in their kid's life. And I brought up youth sports before because a lot of us have kids at that age and the culture has shifted so much to where that's become something where it's really like you can just kind of see it where the parents weren't that good at sports, but their kid is going to be good. My kid plays basketball, one of my kids, and, uh, and, and I'm a tall parent generally, but I also realize if he wants to be good at this, he's going to wish he had a taller parent. But we'll go to tournaments and stuff, and there'll be parents about this big, and they're like, my kid, this and that, my kid, this and that, and I'm like, your kid right here. <laughs> right? <laughs> like... 
and the smallest guys in, when you watch on TV are my size, my size, and you're here. <laughs> like it's, but it isn't that, like I'll start, you can have those conversations, but they're based in logic, and logic is completely useless when you're parenting. We talked about that last week. And especially if you're parenting to a hole that you had in your, or a perceived hole that you had in your own childhood. And it doesn't just have to be sports. It can be popularity. It can be material things. It can be the relationship that you have. If you had a relationship that left you feeling empty with your parents, you're determined that your kids won't have that relationship with you. And you are intentionally moving in that direction. What the Bible calls parents to, Christian parents to, is to be intentional about passing your faith on to your children passing your faith on to your children, which sounds like the easiest thing in the world until it's not the easiest thing in the world. Because when you have a relationship with God and and you want to pass that relationship on, your relationship with God is characterized by God's forgiveness to you, God's grace to you, God's mercy to you, and your continued failure to live up to the perceived standard that you have of following God, right? Like this is what the Bible teaches. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you will continue to have this standard of holiness and perfection that you want to live up to. Obviously, that's what it means to love God. But you will fail to do that and you'll experience the grace and forgiveness of Jesus on your life. And so when we want to pass that on, we say this. We say these things. God loves you exactly the way you are. God forgives you when you repent and turn towards him. God has a plan for your life. God loves you and is consistent and will never change. We can say those things, but if our life and our environment and our medium says something different, then those words and the experience, there's a cognitive dissonance there, and we always go with experience over words. Whether we consciously choose it or not, we always go with experience over words. When you talk to someone who's gone through a great deal of suffering, and they wonder, where is God in my suffering? The words that you tell them are competing with the experience that they had. And a lot of times the experience wins. I would say more often than not, the experience wins. So when you have children and you're trying to teach them the gospel, instead of worrying, because I know when we talk and we try to get volunteers for Sunday school and youth group and stuff like that, they say, I just, I don't know enough to teach the kids. I don't know enough. Like I don't, I haven't mastered the Bible, right? You're not gonna, <laughs> right? Like, like, you can try really hard, but there's probably gonna be something about pneumatology that you just never get a grasp on, right? I don't have a grasp on my pneumatology either. <laughs> but there is this, that's only funny to me, that's where I did poorly on my doctrinal exam to become a pastor, and so I'm angry about that for the rest of my life. But, <laughs> but there is this, there is this like thinking that, I'm not enough to teach the doctrine, which is going to be true forever. Like you might be the most doctrinally capable person in the room, but what the children need and what rising generations need and what people need who we're pouring our lives into is more than doctrinal perfection because the environment that is created actually speaks as much as the things that we believe. When we think about our relationship with God, 
There's a couple of things that we see through Jesus when he's on earth. And just to hit these really quickly, Jesus interacts with people who have failures, just like our children have failures. I know your kid's perfect, but once you go home, you know that's not true. Here, perfect, perfect, right? But in the car on the way to church, not so perfect. Uh, But when we think about Jesus' interaction with people who were obviously not perfect, Jesus interacted with, uh, just like a couple of them, the woman at the well. The woman at the well had gone through five husbands and was now, or four husbands or five husbands, and now was living with a man that wasn't her husband. And in that society, that was scandalous. She was at the well in the middle of the day because she didn't want to go in the morning when the rest of the women went because of the shame that she felt. And Jesus interacted with this woman. Jesus interacts with Matthew, the tax collector, the tax collector, and he actually calls him to be a disciple. The tax collector would be like, if another country overtook your country and ran the IRS so that our taxes went to some other country, you would hate the people who worked for the IRS because they'd be like traitors, right? Like they're collecting money to give to an occupying force. This is who Matthew was. And Jesus goes, you can be one of my disciples. You can be a person who follows me. Jesus is walking into a town and there's a short man who's also a tax collector and is a bad tax collector who would charge you a little more than you actually needed to pay so that he could pad his own pockets. His name was Zacchaeus, and we know he was short, and he apparently had short man complex. Jesus sees Zacchaeus in this crowd of people who are worshiping Jesus. Jesus sees Zacchaeus and says, you, we're going to have dinner tonight at your house. Let's go. Jesus sides with the people who are interested in Jesus yet know they don't have what it takes to be interested in Jesus. Jesus moves towards those people. Now, at the same time, there were people that Jesus interacted with who had a perception of themselves that they were holier than Jesus, that they were a little better at following the ways of God than Jesus was. That's a bad place to be if you, because it means they don't understand the divinity of Jesus. And Jesus' interaction with them was much more aggressive and much more stark. He never moves himself into their position. Jesus never moves himself into the position of the people who think they're holier than everyone else. He always moves himself into the position of people who know that they aren't deserving. So as a parent, when we apply this, the people in your family who aren't deserving are the ones with no job, who pay no rent, who never turn the lights out, who don't cook for themselves. They're the undeserving, right? They are the ones who are dependent. And you'll have these moments when they see it and they realize it. And in those moments, the response that teaches them about God is moving towards them in those moments. Now, this doesn't mean we never discipline our children, right? The Bible is really clear that God disciplines the ones he loves. This doesn't mean we never discipline our children. But it does mean, as a parent, and here's your parenting tip of the week, being aware of moments when your kids or the people you're mentoring, if you're a coach or whatever, or your grandkids, being aware of the times when they know they've screwed up and the times when they don't know they've screwed up. Like there are times in my kids' lives when they do something bad and they have no idea. Like maybe they even should have an idea, but they honestly have no idea. And so then they don't know that they're doing something wrong. Then they have also no idea why dad is losing his cool. (laughs) Right? 
Like, I didn't know something was wrong. Now I know something's wrong because something's wrong with you, Dad, right? I'm sure that's not what they think because their dad's a pastor, right? So, but when, then there's other times when your kids know they've screwed up. This is the same way that God interacts with us. There are times in my life where I know I've failed, where I know I haven't done what I wanted to do, or I haven't lived up to what I believe God has for me, maybe as a dad, maybe as a husband, maybe just as a guy, maybe just, I just, I have a standard for myself that is biblical and I haven't done that. When I pray to God in those moments, there's a lot of repentance, there's a lot of I'm sorry, there's a lot of God meeting me where I'm at. Then there's other times in my life when I've screwed up and I have no idea. This happens more often than you would think. <laughs> or I should say, just as often as you would think. And my prayer times then don't sound repentant. Don't sound contrite. It's just like, yeah, everything's good. And then I run into something down the road where God puts someone in my life usually who points something out and I'm like, wow. So I've been screwing that up for the last 10 years. <laughs> Kind of wish someone would have spoke to me about that a decade ago. And then we have, then I'm aware, and then I change. If somebody just gets mad at me for doing something that I don't know is wrong, then I have confusion, not repentance and not change. Does that make sense? So when we interact with our children or when we interact with the people that we love, it's more than just teaching them the right way. It's creating an environment where they can actually recognize the right way. Let me give you an example. And I'm going to give you an example of where I think I did something good as a parent. I'm not trying to create myself out to be a hero, all right? One of my kids uh, failed to live up to the standard that they have for themselves a couple of weeks ago. And the right thing to do was to lay into them, right? In the right way, have a conversation about, hey, this is what the expected behavior is, this is the opportunity that you had, and this is the reality of the way that you behaved in this situation. And without being specific. And we had a tough conversation with dad. At the end of that tough conversation with dad, because discipline was the right thing, they understood that they were wrong. They and my child understood, and I sound like I'm some kind of freaking hero here. I'm not this good at parenting all the time. Most of the time I'm just like, what's wrong with you, right? But in this, in this moment, God's grace was working in my life. And so and hopefully you've had these moments. But there. There is this, then we had this conversation, and we, and, and, and there was, you could see that they knew and they understood and didn't want that result from their behavior. And so then we have a conversation after that conversation that sounds like this. All right, now that's gone. Like, you're forgiven. I forgive you. You forgive yourself. It's gone. We're never talking about this again. Like, it will never, that's why I can't tell you the specifics, because my child will never have a conversation about this again, ever. And we're going to move on forward. And after we had that conversation where you're never going to have this conversation again, we were in the car, so we stopped and got ice cream. Because even though your behavior was substandard, we had repentance, we had restoration, we had forgiveness, it's gone forever, now we have a party. Right? This is the way, because in what I did there was create... And I don't, again, I'm not the hero of parenting. I'm telling you the one thing I did good this year, right? <laughs> Hopefully I've done more than one, but <laughs> this was a recent good. When we tell the gospel to our children, we tell them God loves you. 
he forgives you. He forgets about your sin. He restores you. He brings you into his promises. I didn't have to tell them that's what the Bible said because the experience that my kid had was the experience of the gospel. So when my kid goes to Sunday school and says, God is our father and this is what happens, they have something that they can relate it to. My parent did that for me. This is what happened. I had a bad experience. I was forgiven. It's forgotten. They've never brought it up again. And then, after forgiveness, we eat ice cream. This is keeping an open relationship that's honest and has integrity, but has forgiveness and moves forward. And isn't about my hope or what I want for the kid. Like Isaac and Rebecca were like, this kid is better, that kid is better. It really is about God loves this kid. And this kid needs to understand the gospel. And just saying the gospel to this kid isn't going to be enough. Because this kid is going to receive so many other messages that aren't the gospel, I can't afford for the gospel just to be a message that my kid hears. It needs to be something that my kid experiences. Now if you want, I can tell you stories about when my kid did not experience the gospel. My kid experienced the wrath of God and learned about that. (laughs) right but I would bet that your relationship with God isn't based on the isn't based on the wrath of God I would bet if you have a relationship with God today a relationship with Jesus it wasn't because you were so impressed with the wrath of God like you went to some sermon and the preacher hit the pulpit and yelled at you about being a sinner in the hands of an angry God and you went, there's someone I want to give my life to. The Bible teaches that we repent because of God's kindness. We don't repent because God loses it on us. We understand God's holiness and we understand the discipline of God. But when we teach our children... We create an environment where they experience those things. My kids experience discipline because I love them. In the same way I experience discipline from God and I experience discipline from my parents because they love me. And they would say these crazy things like, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. Not true. It hurts. <laughs> but if you are a parent, me and my wife are often, we'll have to discipline our kid. And we're constantly trying to figure out ways to discipline our kids that where we don't suffer, right? Like we're all going to go out to a movie and the kid misbehaves, so now we're not going to the movie. That sucks. I wanted to go to the movie. So I'm being punished, right? And I, in those moments, I experience a little bit of what God experiences towards me. Because there's been times in my life when God has a dream for me and God or Jesus is like, this is going to be awesome. And because of my own failing or my own sin, we don't move into what God has for us. And so God has to discipline me and direct me back. And God is like, that would have been awesome. You blew it, James. Thanks a lot, right? But my experience of God goes beyond, thanks a lot, you blew it. It goes beyond to when I have a repentant heart and I move back, God says, all right, you're forgiven. We're going to forget about this. Let's go get some ice cream. I'm not, that's a metaphor. God's never taken me out for ice cream. But, but I'm sure in heaven there'll be lots of ice cream. Even though Jacob and Esau were set up with an environment that taught them something other than the truth and forgiveness and openness and integrity 
of a relationship with God, they ended up turning back and having this relationship and having it for the rest of their life. But there was a ton of struggle in the story to get to that point. And as parents, being intentional about passing on your faith really is an opportunity to create an environment where the gospel is something that they experience, not something that they're just taught. This is the challenge. And it is wildly easy. You forgive your kids and you give them ice cream until it's not wildly easy anymore. Until your kid isn't repentant. All of a sudden, there's a big challenge there. The story of Jacob and Esau could have ended with Jacob and Esau never coming back together. Right? The story could just continue and go on and everyone would say, yeah, we get something from that story. Don't screw your kids up as parents. But somehow, in God's grace, there was restoration and that relationship grew and they carried on as the people of God and became the leaders. And now we have like the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God continued to work in it. And there's going to be times in your life when you talk to your kid and they are not repentant and you don't end up with forgiveness, forgetfulness, and ice cream. Maybe you even have forgiveness and forgetfulness, but ice cream isn't the right step. Like moving to the party because you can't invite someone into the party who doesn't want to be in the party. And in those moments, and this is why I don't give parenting advice, in those moments, you are completely dependent on your own relationship with God, on your own prayer, and on your own being in that place for your kids. Because for Isaac, he had Jacob. Man, Jacob wasn't what he wished he was. And Rebecca, well, she preferred Jacob, had Esau. And man, she wished Esau was different. But they weren't. And they had to move into that. But instead of choosing to have an open and honest relationship where they moved towards their kids, they moved in a way to get what they wanted through their kids' lives. The sin of these parents against their kids of wanting what they wanted through their kids' lives actually caused their kids to have years of tension and fear and struggle until they were able to come back together as brothers. Years. Because the parents had an opportunity to create an environment that, told, that didn't tell their kids about the gospel, but actually experienced gospel. And instead they created an environment of competition, of violence, of unmerited favor like, and, and prejudice against each other. As you're parenting, it's not like, in, if you read the New Testament, there's no book that says, here's the five steps to raising kids that are awesome. And if you look on Amazon, there's 200 books that all disagree with each other on how to raise your kid. The best one's like, have a new kid by Friday. I usually, I want to order that on Wednesday. And it takes two days to get there. I can do that. But really, figuring out your kid and how to best help your kid become the person that your kid can be isn't something that someone can give you advice on. It really is a matter of prayer and discernment and hope and sometimes long-suffering and believing 
and creating an experience where your kid can't say, I don't know what the gospel's like. Because the gospel never gives up and is always an open door and Jesus is always moving towards the people who turn towards him. Even like a very slight turn, Jesus moves towards those people. And so as parents, we don't just move towards our kids because we love them. We move towards our kids because it gives them the experience of God's love for them. When my kid screws up and is this much repentance, we have this much celebration. We move heaven and earth to move towards a kid or move towards anyone in our life who has this much repentance. There's different schools of theology, and you might not care about this, but there's one called Calvinism. And Calvinism says you're not facing God, and God grabs you and turns you around, and you can't stop. I'm not a Calvinist. I'm a, a Wesleyan Arminian. And Wesleyan Arminians say we're facing this way, and God's over there, and we turn around. And then God grabs us and moves us. But I'm a little bit Calvinist in this. I think we turn about this much. Did you see that? You didn't. I think we think about thinking about thinking about turning. Like we don't even think about actually turning. We think about maybe that we could think about turning. And there's that little, little, little wee bit. And God grabs us and moves us the rest of the way. And it's like, I saw that. And sometimes we're like, I didn't even see that. And God's like, we're good. We're moving this way now. And I think we look for that in our children. Your kid will do something that shows this little wee glimmer of greatness. Like they spell something right. You're, you're going to be an author. I see it. We're going this way, right? <laughs> and maybe you're wrong about that. Maybe your kid just is a good gambler and guessed right, right? <laughs> but maybe we look for these glimmers and we turn our kids towards the gospel and we are full of forgiveness and forgetfulness and parties and celebrations because being a part of my family is being a part of God's family. And being a part of God's family is better than anything you could possibly imagine because of the grace and forgiveness and forgetfulness that you'll experience. The difference in this is that I'm not perfect and God is perfect. That's a huge difference. But the opportunity to show grace and show forgiveness is something that even a non-perfect person can do. You can be a good representative of the gospel and not be God and not be Jesus. If you're in a life group, you'll watch a video this week that talks about this kind of intentional relationship and building this into your schedule and stuff like that. If, if you're not in a life group and you just want to get on Right Now Media, it's called It Starts at Home, and there'll be links on the Grow Facebook. You can check that out as well, or if you can't get to your life group this week. There are opportunities that you have for a very limited amount of time for your kid to experience the love that God has for you and the love that God has for them. And if you're not intentional, that time is going to be gone before you know it. And you'll be on to an intentional time with your grandkids, if God gives you grandkids. And then you have this limited time, and then you're beyond that. And maybe great-grandkids, or maybe you're just going to heaven. But you've got a couple of decades, and that's it. And having an intentionality about your relationships is the difference between your kids having a Jacob and Esau apart story and your kids having a Jacob and Esau together story. 
And Jesus is always going for that together story. So I'm going to pray that way for us, and then we're going to worship God, and as we're worshiping, we're actually going to ask him to help us to create an environment that is gospel, where our families and our children and the people we love experience who God is more than just from our words, but from our life. Let's, let's stand, okay? We'll stand and pray together. Jesus, we are thankful for what you do in our life, even that we're able to come to you, Lord, as the creator, to come to you as our God. And there are things in us, Lord, and every single person here who follows you, there are things in our hearts and in our lives that we don't like, that are in our past, some things that are our fault, some things that aren't, but there are some things that are our fault, and we sought forgiveness, and you forget about them, and you've moved us into a party, and I pray you would give us freedom from those things and allow us to experience your love in a way that is forgiveness and forgetfulness and moving on to the ice cream. Allow us to know you so that we can share who you are with the people that we have influence and responsibility over. Primarily our kids, but then also our grandkids, kids we coach, kids we mentor, people at work or our friends that we're helping grow into who they could be. Allow us to know your grace so strongly that your grace flows through us to other people. Your mercy becomes our outlook on the world. In your name we pray this, God. And we give you our worship because of the gospel experience that we have in you. By your name, amen.